Hi, my name is Scott Simmons. All right, we're going to look at Psalm 123 together. Hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The reading of God's word. I remember being in college. This was, uh, I guess, in the 80s, the late 80s. I graduated in 1990, but I think this happened in like in 1989. I was uh, I was a geology major at uh, James Madison University in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, which is an absolutely beautiful place. In fact, uh, next month I'm going back to Shenandoah National Park to do some hiking uh, in the in uh, like hike up Old Rag and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm, uh, at the time, we, uh, my friend Steve and I, we got together and we were both geology majors, so we love rocks, and we decided that we wanted to do some spelunking, uh, that is caving. And uh, there was a cave nearby in some local farm land that uh, spelunkers like to go to, and so we uh, decided that we would explore this cave. And the big attraction to this cave was it had a underground lake at the bottom. And that's what we wanted to see. We wanted to be able to climb down into this cave and uh, and see the underground lake, spend some time just enjoying it, and then find our way back out. Now, this is not a cave like Luray Caverns or some of these other kinds of things with stalagmites and stalactites that you go and there's lights along the way and all this kind of stuff. It's not anything like this at all. It's uh, we ha- We did know that there was a cliff at the beginning, and so we had to bring rope down into the cave so we could tie it to a rock between these two cliff faces and then climb down to the bottom of the cliff. And then, uh, so we had a rope for that. And then the rest of it was just basically, uh, we kind of walk and shimmy and crawl and on our bellies sometimes. And we had this uh, foolproof method for being able to find our way to the underground lake. That is, uh, if it went downhill and our bodies could fit through it, that's the way we went. And uh, we got muddy, and it was wonderful, and it was great. And on our way down there uh, to this underground lake, we uh, started to notice something that uh, was unexpected. Uh, my friend Steve, his flashlight started to get dim. And these are brand new uh, batteries. And so we thought, no big deal. Uh, I got my, um, my flashlight. We'll be fine. And then a few minutes later, my flashlight started to get dim. And no, we did not bring backup batteries. And so we started to realize um, shortly after that the precariousness of our situation. Because, uh, you know, if we did run out of light, uh, that was it. <laughs> we weren't getting out. There's no way to find your way out of this cave uh, without light. And so we decided we weren't going to see this underground lake. We were going to uh, find our way out, or at least try. 
And the more we tried to find our way out, the darker it got because our lights became more and more dim. And we become, became more and more afraid. And eventually we decided that we would um, only use one flashlight at a time because uh, we were realizing given, I mean, it took us a couple hours to get down there. And so it's going to take us a couple hours to get back. And we realized that we didn't have enough battery power to make it out if both of us use our flashlights at once. And so we would use one flashlight at a time. And after a little while, my friend's flashlight actually died. It wasn't working at all. And so we had to use only mine. And it was, you leave the flashlight on and you kind of see what's ahead of you, crawl to that spot, uh, turn the flashlight back on, see what's ahead of you, turn the flashlight off, climb to that spot. And this, this is the way we, we tried to make our way back. And, uh, it was scary. Now, at one point I got, I guess I wasn't, as scared as I could have been or maybe even should have been because at one time I thought it would be really funny and I took a rock and I threw it and as soon as it hit the wall, I turned off my flashlight and said, oops. And uh, my my friend was not very happy with me for doing that. (laughs) But uh, I remember the feeling that I had as we were trying to find our way back to that rope because this was also the big thing that was looming over us is that rope wasn't long enough. So when we went down, we had, we, we got to the end of our rope, but our feet didn't touch the ground. So it's not even like you could feel the edge of the walls to find the rope. You, we had to be able to see the rope to be able to find the rope, jump and catch it, and then hopefully pull ourselves up. I mean, we were doing everything wrong. And, and so as, and, and I remember the feeling that I had as we were trying to find our way out. And as the light was becoming dimmer and dimmer, the darkness was just kind of encroaching into our lives. And it was closing in around us. And I was terrified. And I, uh, felt helpless because there was nothing we could do to get ourselves out of this situation. We couldn't make our flashlights last longer. We needed to use them to find our way out. We were helpless. We could just pray that God would get us through. And this is, in many ways, what it's like for us when we go through grief. When we go through periods of time where we are suffering and where we have experienced loss, we have this profound sense of fear and a profound sense of loss and a profound sense of hopelessness. And we feel like our world is kind of closing in around us. And all we can see is what's causing us to grief. And there's nothing outside of that that can give us hope. And we feel overwhelmed by the darkness of what's causing us to grieve. And this psalm looks to pull us out of that. This psalm looks to give us hope in the midst of it. It doesn't promise at all to get rid of our grieving, and it doesn't promise at all to get rid of what would cause us to grieve in the first place. It doesn't take away our sorrow, and it doesn't take away what causes our sorrow. But it does point us to a God who's enthroned in heaven, and it does point us to a God who loves us, and it also reminds us that we're not alone, that we have each other. This is a communal lament. It's a lament that's written for a community of people to sing. 
as they offer their complaints to God. And really, that's what they call it in theological terms. It's you offer your complaint. You offer your grief to God and you implore him to fix your situation. But it's also a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm that was written, uh, Psalm 120 through 134 are all psalms of ascent. They were written uh, and, and collected together to be used as the people of Israel would um, sojourn, would, would climb the Temple Mount to participate in Israel's festivals. And they were likely sung in order. They likely began in Psalm 120 and ended in Psalm 134. And as they went through this, they would go from psalm to psalm to psalm. And in many ways, these psalms would be preparatory. They would be what would help them prepare for worship in the festivals. And I absolutely love that the way this psalm begins in this procession is as a community lament. Because we don't really deal that much with lament in our normal and everyday lives and even in our in our corporate worship. We we lament almost every Sunday in our in this church when we confess our sins. We're confessing our sins before God, but often that's done in a very individual sort of way. But we tend to think of lamenting outside of that as being a very private and personal thing, not something that we uh, share with others uh, unless we absolutely have to. But this is something that um, is not biblical. And it's not the way Psalm 123 is to be understood. For the, the leader of this procession, when he breaks into song, he starts with I. To you, I lift up my eyes. He begins with the singular. And he, he's calling out to God to worship and to implore him to change his situation. But he's not, this is what I think is amazing. He doesn't sing the song, you know the song we used to pray song from the 70s or 80s, I think it might have begun, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and when the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's not what this song is. We not. He doesn't just look to the temple and see God enthroned in heaven and says, oh, I don't have to worry about my grief anymore. It all grows strangely dim. I'm just going to look at the beauty of God. He's not ignoring his grief. He's not ignoring his pain. He brings it with him. As he ascends the Temple Mount, he's not leaving his grief behind. He's carrying it with him. Just as he's carrying himself up the Temple Mount, he brings his grief to the Lord because only the Lord can deal with it. Only the Lord can take away his sorrow. Grief and and sadness is not something we're to leave at the door when we come into worship. It's something we should feel free to bring in and confess and to share in front of a God who loves us. And so he brings his mercy with him, or he brings his grief with him to call out to God for mercy. But as the psalm progresses, the I changes to our and us. It's no longer just the leader of the procession. It's also the entire congregation. The procession begins to sing along with him. And the individual lament becomes a corporate lament. And I love this because in any large group of people, 
And we simply cannot assume that everyone is experiencing the same things in the same way. In this procession, likely some people were having the time of their lives. They love a good hike. They like going up the mountain. And, they're, and they just had a baby, and the baby's doing well, and they're, they're feeling wonderful as they're ascending this temple mount. But the group leader, the leader of the procession, is feeling grief. And so they all join in grief and in lament with the group leader, simply because he's grieving and they're part of the same procession. And so they all share in the joys and in the sorrows of the other members. Everyone joins in the sorrow and sings this song together because they're all going through this together as one community. And this is something I think we're missing as a church today. We miss the corporate element of grief I remember being, um, when I was in, uh, after I graduated college and after I graduated seminary, I started teaching in a Christian high school. And my, I became pretty close with a family. The mom taught at the school. Their daughter uh, was one of my students. And every year we, we took a mission trip down to Mexico together. And so we got to know each other pretty well. And I got to know the struggles that the daughter was going through as she was going through high school. And... Uh, after I stopped teaching and after I became a pastor, they had a tragedy in their home with their son. Their son was older. He was 25 years old. And for years, he'd been addicted to drugs. He was very troubled, and he had been addicted to drugs. And his, it was so profound for them when he was younger that whenever they got a phone call late at night, they were certain that the phone call was going to be from the police telling them, that they'd lost their son to a drug overdose. They were just waiting for that to happen because there was nothing they could do. But the son actually checked himself into rehab. And the son uh, went through the program, and for two years he was clean. And he got to the point where we started to feel like, it's not going to happen to me. And the parents no longer felt like when a phone call came late at night that their son, uh, they would find out their son was had passed away. But he went to a Super Bowl party. And his friends convinced him to do one more. And he had been clean for two years, and his body couldn't handle the drug dose that he had taken. And he died. They went through years feeling like the phone call is going to come. And after two years of him being clean, when they felt like they no longer had to worry about that anymore, that's when it comes. They get the phone call. Your son has OD'd. Your son has died. And the grief is overwhelming. And so they come to me, and, and I'm doing the funeral for them. And for their 25-year-old son. How do you do his funeral for a 25-year-old son who dies like that? <clears throat> but I did it. And I remember being so afraid when I prepared the sermon, uh, the homily during the funeral. I remember thinking, I just got to get through this without crying. And I tried not to look at them, but it didn't work. And in the middle of the sermon, I looked at them. I saw the mom, and I saw the dad, and I saw the sister. And I was like, there's no way. And I cried. And of course they cried. And everyone there cried. And I felt horrible because I ruined the sermon. I ruined the, the, the funeral service with my grief. 
But afterwards, they just embraced me. Because what I had done without even realizing it, trying not to, was I'd given them the opportunity to grieve corporately together. There is nothing you can do to make a situation like that better. There are no magic words you can say. You can't preach a Christ-centered sermon that will make it okay. All you can do is be there. All you can do is lament with them. To be human together. And be a part of a community. And to lent, lament together as a community. Because lament is a community event. Laments teach us, about some, teach us something about ourselves. And our relationship to God. We believe ourselves to be capable of so much. We believe that we have the opportunity and the ability to be able to control and manage our lives, to manage risk, to plan for retirement, to use our credit cards to get us out of difficult situations. Heck, we got lawnmowers to keep our lawns looking nice. We have all sorts of things that we use when we spend money just to make life work and manage it so that it doesn't, we can be prepared for whatever happens. And we live in this illusion that that is real, that the control we feel over our lives is real, but it's not. And and situations like this make that painfully obvious, that we are not in control. But we do have a God who sits in heaven, who sits enthroned in heaven, and he is in control. And he uses a, a, a parallel to describe it. He compares our relationship to God to the relationship of a servant to his master. The servant is completely dependent. In the ancient world, servants were completely dependent on their masters for provision. And so their eyes would look to their masters and their masters would provide them with what they needed. And that is the way we are with our God. We are totally dependent on him and on his provision. And so when we grieve and when we feel pain, it is totally right for us to call out to him, to ask him for mercy, to rescue us from our affliction, because he is the only one who can do it. And I'm not suggesting at all that we shouldn't use our resources to wisely act, to manage risks, and to plan for the future, and to cope with our struggles and things like that. But wisdom flows from the reality that we are to fear the Lord, from the recognition that we are dependent on him, that he is God. And we aren't. But no one should have to go through it alone. When one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. When one member of the body suffers, we all are to grieve with it. And we all can grieve together. And we can all petition the Lord together for mercy. But there's a problem here in this psalm. There's a catch because the psalmist is dealing with a situation not just where there is injury, but also with insult added to injury. As you can see in the last couple of verses, he says, we've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of scorn of those at ease, the contempt of the proud, that there were people who were proud, prideful. They were scornful of them in whatever they were going through as a as a people, and they mocked the people of Israel, as they were going through their grief. They added insult to injury 
to make their suffering even worse. And nobody knows really what was the source of Israel's grief. There's a lot of speculation. This this psalm has been dated as being from the time of, of the return from exile. And so it's possible that when they returned from exile and they would ascend the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount may have been in ruins. And it's possible that what they were experiencing was the mocking of the nations as they ascend the Temple Mount and really everything is just in ruins. And they're mocking them for for um, their situation. And it, it might be that. It might be that's what's going on. But we don't know. The psalm is vague. And I believe that's intentional. Many of the psalms are intentionally vague so that even though it was written under one circumstance, it could be sung under many circumstances. And in as much as our situation is like the situation that's described in the psalm, we can join with it and grieve with it. And so we don't know what the actual case was that that started this psalm, but the reality is we all have experienced times when we've gone through grief and we've been mocked or judged. And we can know that sometimes even Christians will add insult to injury when we go through difficult times. And this is a reality that often adds fear to our own grief because nothing kills biblical lament more than a community that mocks or scorns those who grieve. It makes us want to hide. It makes us want to avoid shame at all costs and not share what's causing us to grieve for fear that we might not get the response that we so desperately need. And so we need safety. The church needs to provide safety so that those who are grieving, so that those who are lamenting, can find a safe place to be able to share their grief, to lament and to know that they're going to be uh, loved as they go through it. When my friend lost their son, their biggest fear was that people would look at them and say things like, if you were just growing kids God's way, your child wouldn't have gone through that. If you were the father or the mother that you were supposed to be, you wouldn't have a child that went through that. And that's the awful kinds of things that Christians sometimes say. It's worse than just the platitudes that say that God, you know, plucked this rose for his garden in heaven or whatever, the kind of nonsense things we say. We can add insult to injury by simply talking if we're not willing to enter into the grief and to love in the midst of it. But this psalm exalts a God who is king in heaven and he wants us to lament and he wants us to cry out to him. He wants out. He wants us to call us uh, to call out to him for mercy. And he wants us to do it as a community. And our God is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in mercy. And he listens to us and he hears. And he's not just a God who listens to us with a sympathetic ear. He's actually a savior who joins with us in our grief, and in our suffering. And he laments with us in our grief. There's an amazing passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what he says here. 
And this is, he's referring to Jesus. This is, this is why Jesus is not a claim to call, or is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Saying, I will tell of the name, uh, I'm sorry, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is putting these words on the lips of Jesus. Jesus is the one that is saying, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. When we gather together for worship, it's not just us singing to God. It's also Jesus in his human nature joining with us in our worship. And these words actually come from Psalm 22, which is a lament. It's the same lament that Jesus sung on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the same song. And Jesus sings it with us. In other words, one thing we need to know when we're grieving, when we're going through pain and suffering, and when we're calling out to him in sorrow, that Jesus isn't just the one that listens to us, but he grieves with us and he laments with us. He joins in our worship and he is a part of us. When we grieve, where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. And he's not just sitting there enjoying the music. He's singing with us. In, in a very real sense, Jesus is our choir director. As we, as we lament together, he laments with us in his human nature. He joins in our sorrow he joins in our grief and he laments and he sings with us. He is not just a God who receives our worship. He is one who is enthroned in heaven and worships with us. And if that is true, then we have no right to do any differently. We have no right to look at anyone with contempt when they're going through grief. We have no right to judge. We can simply join in and grieve too. Because we have a Savior who entered into our world. He took upon himself our sinful, our, our human nature. And he sympathizes us with, with us in our weaknesses. And yet he is without sin. And he died for our sin and for our shame. And he might, and he rose again that we might walk in newness of life. And his work of redemption is finished on the cross. But the victory he purchased on the cross will only be realized fully when he returns, when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And our God is not a God who says, cheer up, without taking away the cause of our grief. He is a God who purchased for us a new heavens and a new earth with no grieving or sorrow or pain because the source of our grieving will be taken away in the new heavens and new earth. But until then, we grieve. But we never grieve alone because Jesus in his human nature is with us. And we don't have to grieve alone with him either, because we can always join with him in each other's grief. As you might know, uh, we made our way out of the cave. We survived. 
Um, we, we found the rope. We got our way out. And, um, and I remember thinking, we would not have made it out of that cave alone. If I was by myself, it, it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have gotten myself out. We needed each other. Not just the emotional support of kind of keeping us going, but also just the help of, where's the rope? Oh, there it is. We needed help from each other. And I don't know uh, how this, the story of this psalm ends. It might be that it had a happy ending. If we look at Psalm 124, assuming the Psalm 124 was was sung after this one, that gives you the impression that maybe there was a happy ending to this psalm. But we don't know that that there was, and the Bible doesn't guarantee happy endings to our laments. But in my case, I made it out of that cave. (laughs) And I remember thinking, I'm not doing this alone again. I will never go through this alone. That was the lesson I learned from that situation. And we went back together. We bought extra batteries. We bought better flashlights. We found that lake at the bottom of the cave, and we enjoyed it as geology majors and just for fun, and we made our way back out. We had a great time. But we didn't do it alone, because we didn't have to, and neither do you. Some of you are going through difficult times. Some of you are grieving. Some of you are going through things as difficult as my friends um, that lost their son. And it can be tempting just to hide away. You don't want to be a burden on other people. Or maybe you're afraid of what people will think of you if you share. But I'm here to tell you, there are safe places here in this church for you to share. Because when I moved here almost 10 years ago, we went through a very difficult time. And I had to talk to Matt, and I had to talk to Mike, and we were loved. And they're not paying me to say this. There are safe places here for you to share. There are Stephen ministers here that are equipped to be able to help you grieve. And there are life groups. Oh, we're not life groups anymore. What are we? We're community groups. We have community groups here where we can share and where people can walk with you in your grief and in your pain. If the darkness is closing in around you, you don't have to be alone. God is with you. And Jesus is worshiping. He's lamenting with you. Find somebody to talk to and don't go through it alone. It not only robs you of Christian community, it robs others of the opportunity to love you through what you're going through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you give us permission to grieve, that you give us permission to come to you with our trials and with our struggles and that you sent your son to sympathize with us and to lament with us in our grieving. And we thank you that you've given us a Christian community that can come around us 
as we grieve. We pray, Father, that you would lift our eyes to see you enthroned in heaven, that you are in control. And that you would comfort us with your son and comfort us with each other. That we might serve you with our entire lives for your glory and for your kingdom. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.